looking at uh, the last of the seven gifts in Romans 12. So if you'd like to open your Bibles uh, to Romans 12 once again, do that. Uh, let me, before we get into Romans, let's, let's talk a little bit about Lent. Uh, if you're not familiar with the season of Lent, let me emphasize it's not a biblical mandate for you to observe Lent, but it is a helpful, good thing to do. We as a church do it every year. And uh, in the back, there's an explanation of Lent and Ash Wednesday and how to fast and all those things. I've emailed it out, but if you don't use email, there's a printout in the back that explains it. Hopefully, clearly, if you have any questions, you can talk to me or one of the elders. Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which is this coming Wednesday. We'll have a worship service here at 7. We'll do the ashes and we will pray and start Lent in repentance. So I encourage you to come to that. I also encourage you to fast on that day. And again, in the explanation in the back, you can, you can uh, get some tips on how to fast if you have not fasted before. But start your Lent with, with humility and contrition and coming before God and saying, I am a sinner that needs your grace. And, uh, and uh, do your Lent with those kinds of attitudes, not out of duty or ritual or peer pressure. So get the explanation in the back. Also, we're going to have a devotional that we'll use throughout Lent. So it's a, it's a daily guide to read the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we'll also be preaching on the Gospel of Matthew, but obviously in six weeks we'll only cover six passages. So, so you can read the whole Gospel with guided reflections. There will be prayer requests in the devotional for our missionaries, specific needs in the community. We did it together uh, with, um, with Hilson Community Church, so there's their requests and our requests in, in there both. Uh, we will have it all ready on Ash Wednesday, so you can pick up a complete copy on Ash Wednesday, and we'll be sending it out probably in the next couple of days online if you want to use it just on your phone or your computer. That, that's fine. That's better, easier for us. We don't have to print quite as much. Uh, but the printed version will be all ready by Ash Wednesday. If you know you can't come on Ash Wednesday, grab the first week of the devotional readings in the back, so at least you can get a good start until you get the printed version on the Sunday that you're here. So, so that's I really want to make sure we, we're clear on this, these housekeeping issues here. But All right, so open to Romans 12. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts again, talk about the gift of mercy. Let's read the whole passage again just so we set up the context well. Uh, 12.3 For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in, our, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we've talked about two levels of application for this text. You may have a particular gift, like mercy or prophecy or giving, and then you should use that gift, and you will be a catalyst for that ministry in our church. If you don't have a particular gift, like mercy we're talking about today, this still applies to you as a responsibility, because we're all supposed to be merciful as our Father is merciful. We're all supposed to do all those other things. 
So as you listen, you need to be asking yourself, do I have a particular gift I need to use? Or is there a particular responsibility I've been neglecting that I need to focus on and do better at? So look at those two levels of application as we talk about mercy. Paul says, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy. Well, what is an act of mercy? Well, it's any act that fills a need for someone. We're talking about helping somebody with a particular issue or problem. It is a ministry to people who are poor, who are homeless, who are lonely, who are emotionally or physically unwell, people with disabilities or special needs, people affected by mental illness. Anybody qualifies with any need to be a recipient of mercy. Now, interestingly enough, we are all, at one point or another, to some degree, need mercy from others, and we are to extend mercy to others. So we go, all of us fall into both groups. We need mercy from others, and we need to extend mercy to others. Now, let me give you some examples. An act of mercy could be giving somebody a ride, for example. It could be uh, giving them, uh, buying a meal for them. It could be welcoming children with special needs into our church, like we have done. It could be visiting people in hospice or nursing homes. It could be giving money to a homeless shelter or volunteering at a homeless shelter. Anytime you are filling a need for someone, you are doing an act of mercy. And Paul says, as you do that, do it cheerfully. Don't do it out of obligation and duty. Don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it because you have to, but do it cheerfully. Now that word, cheerfully, is the same Greek word that we get our word hilarity from. So do it in a hilarious way. It would be a very literal translation, which is why they don't do it. Do it with joy. This mercy that Paul is talking about is a, is a cheerful mercy. It's a laughing mercy. It's a smiling mercy. You, you don't come and do it because you have to, and you, say, and you say, I need to help you, I have to help you, I ought to help you. No, you come because you want to help them. Now, the next question is then, how do we get there? How do you be that kind of a merciful person that doesn't just do it and fills the requirements, but does it joyfully, with a smile, cheerfully, happily, warmly, and and, and with a sunny disposition? How do you do that? How do you do that kind of act of mercy? Well, we need to look at three things in order for us to be able to do it. The first thing is the most important but the other two are helpful as well. We need to look at the merciful God as our motivation for mercy. We need to look at the merciful heart as in how it changes us, what we need to feel and think, and our attitude should be to be merciful. And finally, merciful life, as in how do we practically do it? How do we put it into practice? So merciful God that changes our hearts and make it merciful hearts, and that flows into the merciful life. Okay, let's talk about those three things. Now, when you look at our culture and you look at common motivations for mercy and compassion, and obviously, you know, you turn on the TV or you look at magazines, there's a lot of appeals to you to be compassionate and contribute to a particular cause or volunteer or, you know, give your money to somebody who needs it. It is everywhere around us. And typically, I've learned that there are two major motivations that work in most people. One is pity, and the other is social concern. Now, pity, typically, it's, it's an emotional response to seeing 
somebody in great need. So for, it often includes an image or a picture or a vision of something. So for example, you're watching TV and uh, all of a sudden Sarah McLaughlin is singing in the background and the animals are there and you think and you're overwhelmed with pity. Right? That happens. And so, or you, you look at a picture of, a, of an orphan with big eyes, tearful eyes, right? Malnourished baby at, at the mother's breast. Those are images that affect everybody. I mean, we all feel bad, we all feel pity and compassion. What I've learned is that it doesn't seem to last very long, that it's very easy just to flip the channel and move on, right? And all of a sudden you're in a lifetime television for women movie, and you're all engrossed into it, and you don't remember the orphan anymore. Uh, or you turn the, the page of the magazine and all of a sudden, hey, there's purses, and, and, and that's gone, that other, other image is gone. So I don't feel like that, re that Obviously, people respond to that and contribute, so I don't, I don't want to diminish that as a motivation, but I don't think it's all that strong, and, and I don't think it could produce a, a lifelong involvement in, in mercy. Now, another motivation is social concern, and that's typically understood as something that could give you that lifelong commitment to compassion and mercy. I don't think it does, personally. It seems to me that people that talk about these values of, of of social concern, the liberal values, and I use liberal in a positive way, the great liberal values of social concern and justice. It, it seems like there, there's a distance between those people and the people they're trying to help. Yes, they vote for universal health care, which is important, right? It helps others. There's, there's that motivation to bless others in the worldview. There's an understanding that others need to benefit from those things, those services. They're for everybody. And yet, it's one thing to vote for a legislature like that, and it's a completely different thing to bathe a leper, like Mother Teresa has done. Those are two different things. And typically, I've found that, that people who are socially concerned never get to the actual people that they're concerned about. Now, the people who do, that proclaim social concern values, who do get to actual people, have themselves experienced mercy at one point or another. So people in that big camp of social concern that are actually doing the work actually with the people are people who themselves have come out of a place of need and they have experienced mercy of others and they naturally extend it to others. So what I'm learning is that the greatest motivation to extend mercy to others is your own experience of mercy. If you, somebody came to your aid, somebody came to bless you, you're much more likely to bless someone else. And coincidentally, really not coincidentally, but purposefully in Scripture, that is the motivation. When Jesus tells us to be merciful, he says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. As you have experienced God's mercy, so you now extend mercy to others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So then the prospect of mercy in the future should move us to extend mercy in the present. Now you see, the motivation to be merciful has to do with our own personal experience of mercy. And of course, there's no greater mercy than the mercy of God. And so to the degree that we understand God's mercy and experience His mercy, we too will be merciful to others. Now as you read Scripture, you learn very quickly, that God is a merciful God. That God, in fact, is rich in mercy. 
Scripture tells us, that he is wealthy in mercy, that there's an abundant supply of mercy that God has. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all, all comfort, Scripture tells us. One Puritan said that God begets mercy, even generations of mercies from day to day. Now the allusion here is to manna in the desert. When Israel is wandering in the desert and they're asking God to feed them, God every day sends manna to them, sends food to them. Every morning there's new supply of food. Which is why Jeremiah in Lamentations says this, the famous passage, that God's mercy, mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Like manna in the desert, they just come and there's never an end to them. God never runs out of mercy. And God is not just merciful in general. He's merciful towards us. And sure, we can all talk about God's protection, God's provision, God's comfort in our lives, Him coming to our aid in a difficult situation, and those are all expressions of mercy. But the greatest expression of mercy, the supreme expression of mercy, is Christ on the cross, is redemption that God has accomplished for us. That is the supreme example of mercy. And we must look at that, as we always do every Sunday, we go to that, so we could become merciful ourselves. So let me read to you from Ephesians 2 to describe this mercy of God in redemption. Ephesians 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is where mercy happens. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the ultimate act of mercy. Our greatest need now through the mercy of God has been replaced for our greatest blessing. And at what cost? Cost of the life of the Son of God. Now you know that mercy always requires sacrifice. You cannot be merciful to anyone without giving of yourself or giving up something that you have. Remember that story that Jesus tells about a man who was robbed and beaten, left half dead, half dead at the the side of the road to Jericho, and people pass him by, and finally the Samaritan comes in, and Samaritan takes him in. Samaritan spends time with him. Samaritan stays overnight at a hotel, makes sure that the person is okay. The Samaritan pays for the lodging, pays for the medical care, in fact, gives an amount of money to, to, to support this person in, in the future so he could get better, so he could get back on his feet. It's a sacrifice, of course. Social sacrifice, Samaritans and Jews don't mix. 
It's sacrifice of time, at least a day and a night. It's a sacrifice of money. Mercy always requires sacrifice. And you look at God's mercy, and of course, the greatest sacrifice is going to match the greatest mercy. Jesus gives his life for us. Charles Wesley uh, was, a, was a hymn writer in, uh, in the 1700s, and he, uh, he wrote this hymn shortly after his conversion. So with the experience of mercy still fresh on his heart, he writes about Jesus. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What's the image here? prisoner in a dungeon, in a cell, in darkness, shackled. And somebody comes in and opens the door and like a beam of sunlight comes into the life of this person and saves them. And now they can leave. The shackles are gone, they can get up and go and they can leave. And they follow the one who saved them. That's the image. And you see that image in Scripture. Slaves who are freed, right? Prisoners who are freed, people who are healed. That's the image of salvation, how mercy comes to us. It comes and totally changes us, but we start in completely helpless estate. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate, right? The hymn says, and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now what's another image in Scripture of God's mercy? In the prophets and in Deuteronomy 32, there's this image of a baby newly born baby that is abandoned, left in the ditch, left to the side of the road, umbilical cords still not cut, the baby hasn't been washed, the baby has never, hasn't been fed, this crying baby, abandoned by all. And a stranger passes by and notices the baby and takes the baby and washes the baby and cuts the umbilical cord and feeds the baby and, and dresses the baby and even more than that, adopts the baby into his own family. And now the baby gets, gets the inheritance and a new family. That's the image of God's mercy. Completely helpless baby now experiences this tremendous blessing at the hands of a stranger. Somebody who owes nothing to that baby nonetheless gives everything to that baby. This is the image of God's mercy in Scripture. Prisoners freed, right? Slaves freed, orphans adopted. Widows married, like that's the image of God's mercy. And if we get this mercy, it will make us merciful. And to the degree that you feel it, to the degree that you have experienced it, you will become a merciful person. It's, it's this mercy of God that is unlike any other mercy you've seen anywhere. It's this holding nothing back kind of a mercy. It's it's Christ crucifying and blood-soaked mercy of God, sinner-loving and rebel-sparing and slave-freeing mercy. Mercy that finds that abandoned baby 
adopts her from the howling waste of the wilderness and gives her a family. It's a hell-defying, curse-canceling mercy. It's a filth-cleansing, sin-killing mercy. Serpent-crushing, in-your-face, Satan kind of mercy. Now, we need to feel this for us to be merciful. We need to experience it ourselves if we are to extend mercy to others. So let me ask you before I move on, and I do that with great pleasure and great expectation. Do you know this kind of mercy? Have you experienced this kind of mercy of God? Do you see yourself in a baby abandoned by the side of the road, with your only hope is that a stranger might rescue you? Do you see yourself in a prisoner in a cell that can't get out on his own, that is completely at the mercy of others opening and and closing their door and bringing meals to them, and finally they're released because God came in and saved them? You see, many people see Jesus and see religion as something that is helpful. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I need to get to that next level, so Jesus, I need your help to get to the next level. Or maybe there's a part of my life that just isn't right and I need Jesus to help me with that. That, that's That's not what Scripture is talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not mercy. That's help, perhaps, the service. I'm talking about a complete mercy where you are completely helpless. And unless God does it, you can't survive. Like a baby that would die. This, this is the image of God's mercy. Do you know that kind of mercy? Have you experienced that kind of mercy in your life? I, I have quoted this psalm in, in the prayer earlier, but there's this, this, this passage. The psalmist says that your steadfast love is better than life. How can that be? How can you say that? You can only say that if you see yourself to be utterly helpless and dying unless God loves you. Can you say that? In your own life, in your own heart, can you say, unless God helps me, unless God is merciful to me, unless He keeps loving me, I am absolutely nothing. And there's no chance of me doing anything or surviving at all. Anything that I have, anything that I've become on my own is useless. I'm just like a baby abandoned in the ditch. Can you say that? Have you experienced that kind of mercy of God? Now, if if you have, I I almost feel like I can just stop here and be done. I won't, but I could. Because that's the main thing. If you get that part, you will work out in your own life how to be merciful. But if you don't have this part, at best you will just be fulfilling obligations. But Paul says, do it cheerfully. Do it happily. Do it joyfully. God's mercy needs to affect our hearts so that our hearts become merciful. It can't be on a surfacey level of pity or on a a kind of worldview level of social concern. It has to affect our hearts. Once you experience that mercy of God, your heart will be merciful and you will extend mercy naturally to others. God's mercy can really change people and churches and movements to become merciful. In fact, if you look at history, and and I want to be careful, I want to be objective, even though 
obviously I'm in, I'm all into this church thing and the Christian movement. I'm part of it. But looking, trying to look objectively at history, and you see so many hospitals started by Christians, so many orphanages run by Christians, so many missions organizations that go and provide clean water and, and, and provide literacy and all those good things to other people at, at expectation of nothing in return. A lot of them are Christian. And historically, a lot of them have been Christian. Why? We're people changed by God's mercy. It should come naturally to us to do those kind of things. Even now in our city, you look around and so many hospitals have Christian names. And that's because Christians started them. Whatever is happening with them now, but Christians started them. And so, how does this mercy of God affect our hearts? Well, if you know that mercy, if you've experienced that mercy of God, you will start looking at people around you quite differently. One writer said, The needy around us are thus living symbols of our own former helplessness and privation. We are therefore to be living symbols of God's justice, mercy, and compassion. Now, if God was merciful to you, now when you look at somebody who needs mercy, you think of yourself. And you're saying, I'm just as broken as this person. I'm just as needy as this person. And God had mercy on me, so now I will become an agent of mercy for them on behalf of God. May God use me now to bring compassion and justice and mercy to them. You can't look down at people anymore if you are anchored in God's mercy yourself. You can't do that because you realize you are helpless. And whatever advantage you have in life is because God gave it to you. And so you look at somebody and you say, I want to help you because God helped me. It totally changes your perspective on other people around us. You start seeing yourself in them. When you look at the needy and the poor and people with disabilities and the struggling, you see yourself, and you should. There's a story that's told about a, a monk. Uh, this is from the Desert Fathers. Desert Fathers were... Uh, Christians who left the big cities of Egypt and Syria in uh, probably about 3rd or 4th century, and they went to the desert so they could pray more, so they could fast, so they could get to know God better, memorize Scripture. And we can argue about you know, whether that was the right decision to make, or the right you know, appropriate response to what God is telling us to do in Scripture. But nevertheless, many of them became faithful and pious people who helped others. And so this is a story of one monk like that coming back from the desert into the city. He comes to this huge city of Alexandria in Egypt. And this is his first time back. He's, he's not used to the city anymore. And, and he sees a prostitute in the city. And he just starts weeping. He just breaks down and cries. And so his companion says, why are you crying? Why is it affecting you so much? It's a commonplace thing in the city. And the monk says, well, of course I'm, I'm crying because I feel mercy towards her. I feel compassion towards her. I want her to be well and, and, and to get out of that, that oppressive lifestyle. And so I'm, I'm, I'm compassionate towards her. But I'm also crying. I'm also weeping for her because I am realizing that she will do more for her clients than I will do for my God. And that hits him 
and it, and it breaks him and he cries because he's, he's looking at himself. You see, the one who's been affected with mercy cannot look at another person and not see themselves in them. And that's what that monk does. He looks and he says, I am such a sinner. I am so unfaithful to my God who's done so much for me. And yes, comparatively, he was much more faithful than most people around him. Yet his heart felt that he needed mercy. Having our hearts changed by God's mercy, we no longer hold on to our honor or dignity or time or possessions. All those things you must sacrifice to show mercy and compassion to somebody are no longer as relevant to us if we have experienced God's mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the early Christians, the first disciples of Christ. Uh, He says, In order that they may be merciful, they cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honor. For the only honor and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy, to which alone they owe their very lives. He was not ashamed of his disciples, He became the brother of mankind and bore their shame unto the death of the cross. That is how Jesus, the crucified, was merciful. His followers owe their lives entirely to that mercy. It makes them forget their own honor and dignity and seek the society of sinners. They are glad to incur reproach, for they know that they are blessed. One day God himself will come down and take upon himself their sin and shame. He will cover them with his own honor and remove their disgrace. It will be his glory to bear the shame of sinners and to clothe them with his honor. Blessed are the merciful, for they have the merciful for their Lord. You see, our mercy reflects the mercy of Christ. If you're affected by his mercy, your mercy would then be like his mercy. Our mercy is sacrificial because Christ sacrificed himself for us. Our mercy is humble because Christ humbled himself for us. Our mercy is loving because Christ loved us. And if you have experienced his mercy, all those commands in Scripture about being merciful make total sense to you. But you haven't, if you haven't. They seem strange and unreasonable. Luke 6, for example, verse 27. These are the commandments that Christ gave to his disciples and to us. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. That's weird stuff, come on. Love your enemies? Do good to those who hate you. That's not how we do things, right? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is Jesus telling us how we are to live. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Nobody struggled with that, right? Very easy to do. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. These are the commands that Christ gives us. And it makes no sense unless you have experienced God's mercy. Because this is the the rest of the passage. This is how Jesus justifies giving us these commandments. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And this is the motivation. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So if you only take the first portion of the passage, you are overwhelmed with the impossibility of doing any of that. But if you take the rest of the passage and you say, but because God is merciful to me, because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, like me, perhaps I can love my enemies. Perhaps I can pray for those who abuse me. Perhaps I can lend stuff and money to people without expecting anything in return. If that motivation of God's mercy is in your life and it's changed your heart and it's made you merciful, yes, you can do these things. But if that motivation isn't there, it's a burden none of us can bear. All right, so let's talk about practically, really quickly, how we are to do that. Let's talk about the merciful life. I'm assuming you understand mercy of God. I'm assuming your heart has been changed by it. Now, what do we do practically, especially as we talk about our church, we talk about our community? I'll give you three broad principles that should help us. Be present, be prepared, and be persistent. Be present, be prepared, and be persistent. Lucky for everybody, I'll start with the letter P. All right, be present. Be part of the community. Be here. Because that is how you're going to learn about the needs of others. You need to be with the people that you hope to be merciful to. If you're isolating yourself, if you're not really engaged in community, even if you come to church but you're not really here, you're just in and out, you don't stay after, you don't, you don't talk to anybody, you don't have friends, that's not the way to be merciful. You need to be all in, you need to be here. You know, we talk about the importance of the Lord's Day. And there are many reasons why you should observe the Lord's Day and, and worship on Sundays. But one of the reasons is that you worship with the same group of people every Sunday. And you get to know them. And you learn about their needs. And they learn about your needs. So as you talk to them, as you build relationships, it's not just a, a one random prayer request that you prayed once for. No, next week you see the same person. And you see, how's it going? I've been praying for this. Can I help you with something? Is there something in your life that I have the resources to help you with? You need to be here. You need to be engaged in the community. So stick around after church. Come early. Get involved in a group of some sort during the week. Get to know others. Have people over for coffee or lunch. Spend time with others. Be present. Now secondly, be prepared. Think beforehand how you can show mercy to others. Now, it's really easy to be inspired to be merciful and yet lack the resources and preparation to actually do it. Be ready. Prepare. Think through. How can I help people as they ask for help, as they come across various needs? Maybe it's something as simple as just having cash on you, which I understand, like, half of us are like, cash? Cash? It's those things we used to use before phones and such. 
have cash on you. Have gift cards on you. Have coupons to Burger King on you. So you can help people. Somebody comes to you and says, I need food. Here's food. You know, set time aside to help others. So maybe, for example, Sunday afternoon is the time when you've, in your mind, you've set it aside and you say, Sunday afternoon I'm going to do something for someone else. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be ready. My schedule is going to be clear. So when I hear about somebody at church today, like for example, we had a bunch of snow, right? Somebody's probably going to need something shoveled later today, if not right now, right? Be available to that. So you know what? I'm going to leave that time a couple hours after church that I'm available for somebody that, that needs me, that I can help them. When you make a meal, maybe make more than you usually make with the idea that you're going to bring it to somebody. You're making lasagna, make two, bring it to someone else. But you have to think beforehand. This doesn't happen just you know, on a spur of a moment. You have to prepare for that. On a church level, for example, we need to prepare to address specific needs that God has directed towards us. So, for example, we, uh, since I've been in this church, and even before I was a pastor of this church, I always felt that this church is warm and welcoming, and you can come in, and people will generally be excited that you're here, and uh, we don't turn people away, including people with disabilities, including people with special needs. But we were not prepared to minister to people with disabilities and special needs until a year and a half ago. And it took preparation. We had to sit down and, as a body, say, what do we do? How do we make it so that a person in a wheelchair can get upstairs? So that kids with, with special needs can participate in a curriculum and in a children's program upstairs. We had to adjust. We had to change. Now we're prepared. Now if a new family with special needs comes in, we're ready. It's, it's set for them. But we weren't before. What are some other things in our church that we need to get prepared better at? What do we need to do? Like, for example, most of you don't know this, but we have a food pantry at the church, meaning we have a closet with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so some of it is expired. <laughs> most people don't know it's there. Um, we're not exactly prepared to feed the hungry. But, but why can't we do that? Why can't somebody just go through it on a Saturday morning? As actually somebody from the church asked me about it last week, and I think they're planning on doing that. Just go through it, organize it. Let's tell others about it. So it's easy. Somebody comes in and says, I'm hungry, I, need gro I don't have groceries this week. Let me take you to this closet. We have groceries there. Right? Why can we do that? Do you know what we need in the church? We need deacons. You know, God in his wisdom has an office for people, office in the church, for people who are gifted with the gift of service and mercy and giving, those kind of gifts we've talked about. They're supposed to take leadership positions in the church. They're called deacons and deaconesses, people who can use those gifts for the good of others, organize those ministries, encourage others to be involved. So if you feel that you have a gift of giving or a gift of service or a gift of mercy, perhaps you can be a deacon or a deaconess here and serve others. Serve those who need mercy. and Just organize it, just do it better so that we can be prepared to address specific needs. All right, last point and then we'll take communion. Be persistent. Persevere. Be patient. 
Mercy is, is hard work, even if you do it cheerfully, because you will see that many people will respond inadequately to your efforts to bless them. There will be very little fruit. There will be a lot of frustration. There may be no change. People may not use the stuff you give them wisely. Don't give up. Don't give up. Now be wise, of course. Be discerning. Yeah, use your resources in a way that's actually helping people, which means sometimes you have to withhold it. I understand there's that nuance there. But as a general application for, for your motivation and for your inspiration, don't give up. Keep going. Be persistent. Be persevering. Be patient. Because God did not give up on us. So we don't give up on people. And as we see needs, we continue to address them. We continue to bless them. You know, the early church did that so well. The early church blessed people regardless of their church affiliation. They didn't just take care of their own. They took care of pagans. They took care of anybody, people who hated them. They were free with their money and resources at times. Now that's, that's the application. Be patient, persevere, keep going. Well, we're coming to the table now. And at the table is a reminder of God's mercy. You see, we are forgetful people. We get distracted. We, you just show a, a video of cute kittens and we forget everything in life. It's just amazing how, how human mind works. And so God, in His grace, gives us reminders. And God says, every week you come and you worship me on the Lord's Day. Every week we here celebrate communion to remind us of God's grace. So you come to the table and you see Christ's body broken, His blood spilled for you, His mercy extended to you at a great cost to Him, and we rejoice in it. And we say, God, make us merciful too. So let's do that together.